0: Welcome to the August 2015 Security Management Podcast. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell before we get into this month's coverage we have a very exciting announcement to make regarding the podcast next month we're going to be completely revamping and relaunching security management highlights we want to bring you a podcast that not only touches on the issues in the actual monthly magazine but now expand our coverage to include more roundtable discussions behind the scenes interviews as well as more listener involvement that means we'll be depending on you to tell us what topics you want to hear covered so here's the important part if you're already subscribed to this podcast on iTunes you'll need to reset subscribe when the new podcast launches. So be on the lookout on iTunes for security management highlights in early September so that you don't miss out on all the exciting changes. We'll be sure to get the word out when the official launch date is set. And if you already have a light bulb going off in your brain about what you want to hear us cover in the new podcast, send us an email at smpodcast@asisonline.org. at asisonline.org. Now on to this month's coverage. This month, we talked to cybersecurity editor Megan Gates about bug bounty programs and how businesses are using them to spot cyber vulnerabilities. News and Trends editor Mark Torallo stops by to talk about the issue of suicide among security guards and what factors are contributing to this disturbing trend. Finally, David Buckley, the author of this month's cover story, joins us to talk about investigative techniques and the power of positive persuasion when conducting a workplace investigation. But first, national parks and monuments are symbols of the United States' history and prestige, but experts say park security services are ill-equipped to combat the threats that face them. Homeland Security editor Lily Chapa explains. Hi, Lily. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. This month, you wrote about the U.S. National Park Service. What does this agency
1: do, and what makes it so significant? The National Park Service, or NPS, is a federal government agency under the Department of the Interior. They oversee the screening and patrolling of the nation's national parks, monuments, and icons. This covers everything from federal wilderness areas to the national monuments in Washington, D.C., to the Golden Gate Bridge. The rangers keep these areas secure, lead investigations, manage crowds, and respond to disasters.
0: And despite these great responsibilities that the NPS has in protecting the national parks, you write that they lack the resources to protect America's symbolic sites and icons. Can you explain?
1: Basically, the National Park Service does not receive the funding it needs to prepare for a potential terrorist attack. Some experts say that the National Park Service is the poorest stepchild of the United States. The Department of Homeland Security has named many iconic NPS sites as targets for terrorism, and the NPS has to take officers and supplies from more rural parks to bolster security at the high-risk ones. There just aren't enough resources to go around. This issue was pointed out in an open letter from the U.S. Park Police Fraternal Order of Police, or FOP, that said that the NPS and Congress have not provided enough funding in a time where the terrorist threat is so high. This lack of resources means park police are not prepared to respond to a critical incident at a national icon. According to the letter, the equipment the MPS has available is very outdated. They have no technology that can analyze digital evidence from phones or computers, and they lack a video analytics system or any modern cameras and alarms at iconic sites. A reliable radio communication system and mass casualty response equipment is also needed.
0: So it sounds like there's a lack of equipment at these parks, but what about personnel?
1: Well, the NPS has capped the number of funded Park Police officers at 639, although there's really no study or analysis supporting this number, according to the FOP. In fact, the last Park Police staffing analysis was conducted in 1999 and concluded that 820 officers were needed for the agency to operate safely, and this analysis preceded the 9-11 attacks. Overall, the NPS has more than 20,000 employees, but it relies on volunteers for day-to-day support. This means that well-meaning volunteers could possibly pose security risks as well. So what's the future outlook? Is there any indication that their budget might increase? Unfortunately, it looks like the NPS budget is unlikely to be increased anytime soon. In fact, there has been a 12% reduction in total budget for the NPS over the last five years, which leaves iconic sites guarded by the park police and other NPS operations susceptible to security breaches.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Holly. From Target to Sony, cybersecurity breaches seem to be in the
0: headlines nearly every week, but evidence shows hackers usually make their way in through a flaw in the corporate network. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gate stops by to tell us about an innovative way companies are ramping up their defenses. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Megan, tell us, what is a bug bounty program exactly, and what kind of companies are implementing such programs?
2: Well, a bug bounty program, also known as a vulnerability rewards program, generally created by companies, and they ask security researchers basically anywhere in the world to hack their network, document their process, submit that process to the company if they find something that can be exploitable for a potential reward, a bounty. And incentives from companies, they range from free t-shirts to Hall of Fame listings to even large financial rewards. Some companies have infrastructure to support operating their own bug bounty programs independently, but other companies can hire another company like Bug Crowd or GitHub to create and manage their bug bounty program for them, so internal staff can devote their time to fixing and patching vulnerabilities as opposed to finding them and working with researchers who are reporting them. And these programs can be private, so only vetted researchers are able to report bugs and know that bounties are available, or they can be public, meaning the program is open to anyone and is not kept a secret.
0: What kind of companies are are doing these programs?
2: Well, that's the really interesting thing is it first got started definitely in the tech sector and then really blew up when google facebook those big tech companies started using them to success and then recently more players have gotten into the game including western union a big financial company so that was very exciting because they opened up their previously private bug bounty program that was started at the end of 2013 to be a public one this spring in 2015
0: so megan it sounds like there's a lot of different ways that companies can go about setting up these bug bounty programs but what are some of the key defining factors of success?
2: Well, one of the most important things for program managers of bug bounty programs is to make sure that they're clear and communicating what their expectations are and what they want their relationship with researchers to look like. There are lots of different ways to do this, but one of them is by making a web portal specifically about the bug bounty program, sort of outlining how people can participate, what they need to do to document their process of their research, and how they should submit that information to the company to be eligible for a potential reward. Also key to keep in mind is that lots of researchers are not native English speakers. For instance, India contributed the largest number of valid bugs to Facebook's bug bounty program in 2014, followed closely by Egypt. Egypt, and then the United States. So it makes it increasingly important for companies to ensure that their bug bounty guidelines and researcher expectations are easily understandable for those who speak English as their second language.
0: You wrote about a study that measured how some of these programs have actually worked and give real evidence. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, the main one that I had heard about and then was able to find was by three Berkeley researchers. It was published in 2013 called An Empirical Study of Vulnerability Rewards Programs. It looked at Google Chrome and Mozilla Firefox's programs and was basically trying to find out if bug bounty programs are cost-effective mechanisms for finding security vulnerabilities. And it found that they were. According to their research, the cost of both Google Chrome and Mozilla Firefox's programs were comparable to the cost of employing just one member of the browser security team, assuming they paid them a $100,000 salary with a 50% overhead. The researchers also found that the benefit of a bug bounty program far outweighs that of a single security researcher because these programs find many more vulnerabilities than any one researcher is likely to be able to find on their own. The report also found that increasing the number of researchers looking for vulnerabilities also increases the diversity of bugs that are discovered.
0: So you mentioned in terms of rewards for these researchers who find vulnerabilities, they might just get a t-shirt or their name recognized, but what did the source that you talked to say about that, and what does he think should be the reward for finding these vulnerabilities?
2: Well, I spoke with David Levin, who's the Director of Information Security at Western Union and sort of spearheaded their bug bounty program effort. And he said that he thought it was ridiculous to offer anything other than a monetary option for rewards. He sort of explained it, it's like a free car versus a free donut, what's going to entice you more. And there is research that shows that large monetary rewards encourage researchers to report bugs to the company directly, as opposed to exploiting them or attempting to sell them to someone else, possibly on the dark web.
0: All right, well, thank you so much for stopping by today and telling us about these programs. Thanks
2: for having me, Holly.
0: Research shows that security guards suffer from a disproportionate rate of suicide when compared to other professions. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo tells us more. Hi, Mark.
3: Welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Holly. The article you wrote sheds a disturbing light on what looks to be a pervasive issue in the security profession. Tell us about your findings.
3: Yes, it is disturbing. There was a big study by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. It looked at close to 2,000 suicides, which occurred in the U.S. workplace between 2003 and 2010. And the researchers found that the suicide rates were highest for for those in the protective service occupations. Those occupations include security guards, also things like police and other protective services, but those rates were the highest. The rate was 5.3 per 1 million. And the next highest rate, just for comparative purposes, was in the farming, fishing, and forestry profession at 5.1. One other finding, which was kind of interesting, was that when you rank it by age groups, workers age 65 to 74 had the highest suicide rate compared to all the other ages.
0: And in addition to the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health Study, you write about an Italian study that also focused exclusively on security guards. What did it find?
3: The Italian study kind of suggested that the problem may be an international one. It was a Italian journal called the Giornale Italiano di Medicino Lavoro. It was a 10-year study from 1996 to 2006 with the average rate of firearms related suicide among security guards compared to other professions and they found that uh, again it's focused on firearms related suicides but for uh, security guards the suicide rate was again the highest 11.7 per 100,000 persons and that's significantly higher than the firearms related suicide rate of only 0.7 for the general population. The non-firearms arms related suicide rate for the general population was 5.5. But again, that compares to 11.7 for security guards, so much higher there than other professions uh, in Italy.
0: You spoke to an expert who says there are several underlying factors that contribute to this disproportionately high rate of suicide among security officers.
3: What did he say? Several factors seem to be at play. One is the evolution of the industry. Years ago, many more security guards were kind of posted in guard stations, in in places where they were a bit removed. Nowadays, a much higher percentage of security personnel, A, they're armed, and B, they're really more like first responders. They often have to respond to an incident. They're not secluded in stations. They're out there. They're interacting. So it makes the possibility of a traumatizing incident much higher. Then you have a lot of the work situation factors. Some work night shifts that can really disrupt sleep patterns to the point where biologically triggered depression becomes an issue that due to things like you're working at night, you're sleeping during the day, you're not getting enough sunlight, which affects your melatonin. Fatigue and depression are common in those situations. Also working at either night shifts or shifts that are closed, like guards that are guarding closed facilities can be very isolating. And a steady diet of this can be very hard. You've also got the idea of in the general population, a lot of security officers are former military and there's a difference there in that in the general population there's a sense of thankfulness to military service even little things like you know a military person might be in a bar and someone buys them a drink hey thanks for your service no one does that to security guards you don't get that sense of hey you're kind of a hero here even though a security guard is potentially doing heroic things and then finally the financial factor and why this is big is that in general suicide studies Show that in the U.S. the suicide rate goes up when the economy goes down, and a lot of security guards are working for very modest wages. Sometimes it's contract work that's a little bit unstable, so that can spiral into you know home foreclosures, losing your car, which can affect your relationship, and it can be really a lot of negative stuff that's triggered by that.
0: So this is obviously disturbing for managers to hear, but what can they do to help prevent this sort of trend? And employees going down a similar path.
3: Managers can play a big role. Experts say they really need to take notice of their staff. Notice changes. Has an employee's conversation turned darker? Are they sometimes talking about death or morbid things? Do they have abrupt changes in grooming habits? Do they seem more aggressive or much more kind of aloof and isolated? Do they say they're having trouble sleeping, experiencing weight fluctuations? Any kind of sharp change can be an indication of some problem and when those changes are observed it's important for managers to check in with their staff hey you doing okay just how are things going especially in a way that they can make clear listen if you're having problems this isn't going to affect your job you know i'm just concerned about your health you know we want to keep you healthy what's going on all
0: good things to keep in mind thanks so much for joining us mark thanks holly Finally, gone are the days of aggressive interrogations where brutish authority figures sweat the truth out of interview subjects. Instead, positive persuasion methods are being used to conduct effective workplace investigations. David Buckley, a senior instructor and board member at John E. Reed & Associates, Incorporated, joins us to talk about his cover story on investigations. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking me to be here.
0: Tell us how investigative techniques have evolved over the years.
4: Well, I think nowadays investigators are approaching interviewing subjects a little bit differently. I think there's much more of an emphasis on trying to approach them in a much more understanding, empathetic way as opposed to laying out a case that has a lot of evidence and assuming that because there is a lot of evidence that shows they might have been involved in some sort of criminal activity or company violation, that because the information is there that shows they did it, that they will then come forward and just acknowledge that. I think what investigators find is that a lot of objects, even If you have irrefutable proof that they've done something, you might have them on film doing it. They'll look at the film and say, well, that's not me. Or a picture of them in a certain area, oh, you guys photoshopped that. So the evidence itself doesn't necessarily motivate a person to want to acknowledge being involved in any sort of activities that they might face consequences for. So what I think investigators have learned is that they have to spend a little bit more time to be understanding and empathetic as to why the person did what they did, because half of the battle is is making the person feel as though there's some benefit in it for them to tell the truth about behavior that they might be facing consequences for, which is not a very easy thing to do, but it is what you need to do in order to have a person acknowledge that they've stolen something or have been using drugs on the job or have been falsifying their expense accounts or involved in any kind of violations at the company.
0: So what is the significance of using the right tone during the course of an investigation?
4: Well, I think the correct tone during an investigative interview is critical because really the quickest way to shut a person down so that they don't want to talk to you is to become in any way challenging or judgmental to any of the statements they might make. When you think about your own personal life, the people that you like to talk to and the people you don't like to talk to, whether it's siblings, coworkers, friends, there's certain people you don't even like to tell certain things to because you think, well, I know how they'll react. They're so judgmental. They're so critical. You just really don't want to talk to them. Well, the investigator has to assume a tone in the interview where they're completely objective. They're asking questions with a tone of voice that doesn't assume any kind of involvement or guilt. Regardless of what the subject says in response to the question, it's really important that the investigator doesn't show any negative judgment or challenge the person's statement, not during the interview phase. And there should be two phases to the process. So during the initial phase of, fact-finding and developing information in the interview, it's critical that the interviewer allows the subject to do about 80% of the talking. Some interviewers have a tendency to talk too much. It's much better to allow the subject to do most of the talking. And the less challenging and the less judgmental the interviewer is, the more talkative subjects become because they're not really sure how the interviewer is evaluating their responses because the interviewer is being receptive, but they're not showing any kind of negative judgment. They're not rolling their eyes as they write down an answer. They're not pointing out an inconsistency in what the person says. They're just allowing the person to divulge whatever information they're comfortable with divulging during this initial interview process.
0: What is the development of persuasive statements and how might they sound in an interview?
4: Well, the development of persuasive statements is what we would use in what we would consider the second phase of this process. The first phase being the question and answer interview. And then once an investigator makes an assessment that I think this person is withholding information, then they might make the decision to go into the second phase of the process, which we would call clarification. And what we do in this stage is we develop persuasive statements. And there's three key building blocks in the development of persuasive statements. We have to allow the person to say face. We have to figure out how and where we need to shift the blame. And then we also have to develop some sort of a contract. So the first building block, allowing the person to they face, it's really unreasonable to expect anybody to admit any wrongdoing without allowing them to couple the admission with some sort of an excuse. No matter what a person has done, they usually have some sort of a psychological justification for doing it. If somebody is, let's say, using some sort of an amphetamine at their job, well maybe they think that it's okay to do that because they're going to night school and so they have to get up early in the morning and work, they're still tired, they want to do a good job. They know if they don't take something, they might not perform as well. So they might justify using an illegal drug during working hours so that they can perform better on the job. This is what we're trying to tap into, the way subjects perceive themselves, how they perceive the offense they've committed, and how they perceive their place in society. And that's kind of what we're trying to tap into to allow them to save face. Shifting the blame, well... With an employer-related misconduct, let's say it's theft, the first place most employees shift the blame is to the employer. They don't pay me enough or they don't have good security here. They don't appreciate all the work that I do, so they owe me a little bit of extra something. That's how they might shift the blame. They don't want to look at themselves as being a dishonest person. As far as offering a contrast, So many times in our lives, we have made the statement, it could have been worse. Almost no matter what happens, there is that feeling it could have been worse. Your house burns down. It's a devastating thing to have happen. But you look at your family and everybody is fine. No one got hurt. Well, we have to try to figure out from the subject's perspective what they would perceive as being worse than what they did. An employee who might take an iPad from the job doesn't think it's as bad as the guy who they know is taking a pallet worth of property and then selling it on the street. We have to figure out from the subject's perspective what would have been worse than what they did. And then we have to compare their behavior to that. So those are some of the fundamental building blocks that we use in developing these persuasive statements and we develop them in the form of a monologue during the second phase of the process, which would be clarification. They're really trying to empathize with the subject regarding their life circumstances and why they may have made a decision to violate company rules, company policies, and trying to give them an opportunity to explain themselves. Most people, they don't want to be looked at as a thief or as a drug addict. They want to be able to give their explanation as to why they did what they did. They know that they're probably going to be facing consequences for it, but they still want to be able to put themselves in the most favorable light possible. And so we're going to help them do that in the way we develop the monologue in the second phase of the process. But we're only going to apply that clarification phase with just that one individual who we think is withholding. Holding information. Over the years, we have found the most effective way of getting information from someone is to use a more empathetic and understanding approach. In the private sector, this becomes very critical because you're dealing with other factors that maybe a law enforcement official would not be dealing with, namely human resource departments, other supervisory people, because you're dealing with your own employees. But the most effective way of treating an individual in order to get information from them, is to treat them with decency and respect, give them an opportunity to explain themselves, give them an opportunity to save face, and you know, walk away with some level of dignity, even though they know that they're going to be facing some level of consequence for the actions that they have committed.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: All right. Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: That does it for this month's podcast. And remember, next month we are relaunching, so be sure to resubscribe on iTunes. Even if you already subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, you'll need to find us again and resubscribe. So make sure you do that at the beginning of September. And again, we'll send out an official announcement to let you know the exact date. We look forward to launching a new exciting podcast. Thanks for being with us and see you next time. Bye bye.